Let me lead you in prayer. Lord, we come this morning with a tricky question asking, uh, can we lose our salvation? And we've just sung about how you are our salvation. And so we pray now, Lord, that you will open our eyes, still our hearts, put out of our mind all the things that uh, are distracting us this morning so that we can focus, so that we can hear what you have for us this morning. Through your Holy Spirit, Lord, we pray that you will empower your word, plant it deep in us, and let us not leave here today the same as what we came, but let us be changed through your Spirit as we come to sit under your word. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Can we lose our salvation? This is a question that Christians have uh, debated for a long time. Now, um, just a recap of where we are in the year, in our sort of teaching series. We've been looking at the key Reformed doctrines over the last couple of months in our head uh, sections of our head, heart, hands and holy worship ser sermons. And we saw that uh, kind of the basis for the Reformed um, understanding of Scripture can be summarised through that acronym TULIP. So T in TULIP is, uh, stands for total depravity. That is, the human heart is so wicked, so corrupt, so deceitful, that in and of itself it cannot seek after God. We will continue to reject God forever uh, because of this. Unless He intervenes in our hearts, we cannot choose Him. So He must work in us first. That's the, the, sort of our, our point of departure. That's what T, the total depravity, that's what that mean, means. The U uh, stands for unconditional election. So if our hearts are so wicked in and of themselves and totally depraved that they will never choose God, then it must mean that when God chooses us, He does so totally independently of our own goodness, our own ability to please Him or anything like that. That is, our election is unconditional on our, uh, you know, on, on who we are. So whether we're, you know, humanly speaking, great people or terrible people, it doesn't matter. God's choice of us in the election is unconditional. The L in TULIP is for, stands for limited atonement. It's the le next link in the chain. It doesn't mean that God only saves us from some of our sins. That's not what limited, it's not limited in that sense. Uh, it flows naturally from the idea that God chooses unconditionally. If He chooses some, then He naturally passes over others. So not everyone is saved. We are not universalists. That is, we believe that the atonement is limited to those whom God has chosen. So only those that God chooses are made right with Him through Christ. The way that happens is through people accepting uh, through faith that God gives us um, the work of Jesus on the cross for us. Uh, and we saw last time when we looked at this that uh, that is irresistible grace. That's what the I stand for. We, we, in a sense, cannot reject God if He chooses us uh, because the Bible says so. There is this one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one relationship between God electing people and then calling those people and then us responding to that call and then us turning to Him in faith. Um, and you can go back to that message online if you, from a couple of weeks ago if you want to go into that in some more depth. And today's question then is the P in TULIP, the perseverance of the saints. That's technically what the doctrine is called. That is, we have in the Reformed view um, that what we believe is that true Christians cannot lose their salvation. 
Once we are saved, we are always saved. That is what perseverance of the saints means. A saint is someone who has been saved, um, and so you persevere in your sainthood. So once you are saved, you are always saved. Uh, That is, you cannot lose your salvation. And so the quick version of today's sermon goes like this. Can you lose your salvation? No, you can't. So now you can go home. Now for the rest of us who want to look at this in a little bit more detail, um, if you want to know why we believe this as Reformed Christians, then stick around. Uh, This doctrine, is it something that the Bible teaches? If so, where? And then what are the implications for us? That's That's what we want to look at today. Now my task today is to prove to you from Scripture that in fact true Christians cannot lose their salvation. It is impossible because the Bible says so. Now, to do that, uh, I'm going to give you a 15-point sermon today. So settle in, relax, kick up your feet, because we will be here for hours. Um, No, no, not really. What I'm going to attempt to do is to show you why we believe this, why we believe that true Christians cannot lose their faith. They can wander, but they cannot ultimately reject God. Now, to do that, we have to do some theology this morning. What we normally do in a sermon is we take a piece of text and we go deep into that text and see how it applies to us. We explain its context, we explain its application and so on. That's what good Reformed expository preaching looks like. But today we're not doing good Reformed expository preaching, we're doing good Reformed theology together. And so I've given you on your seats a sheet that looks like this. On the one side is um, a whole range of verses from the Bible um, that talk about this particular topic. Now, I have to say this is not an exhaustive list of everywhere in the Bible that might refer to the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, but it is a helpful list that talks about this in some depth. Particularly Romans 8 verse 28 to 39 is sort of one of the key teaching texts of that, but it, it, it will become clear as we go how um, each of these actually fit in today. Uh, so hopefully that'll make it simple for us to understand. On the back of it is the outline of what I'm going to say. So that's my argument, that's what we're going to be talking about today. And so hopefully with an outline of where we're going and the verses that refer to where we're going, uh, it'll all make sense and you will be Um, greatly encouraged and edified this morning. And so that's what I'm trying to do. We're going to look at these these various angles uh, I've outlined there and build our case as we go. Does that sound good? All right, let's go. Now the first thing we need to understand is that as with all things in our salvation, it starts with God. Now, we already looked at this in some depth over the last few sermons, and you can go back and listen to those if you want to, but it is important for us to reiterate first and foremost that it is God the Father who predestines us to be saved. He chooses for Himself a people right from before creation even begins who are going to be His people. He is the one who first chooses us even before the beginning of the world. And the passages that talk about that is that Romans 8, 28 and 39 passage. And also in Revelation 3 verse 5, we read that in the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and before his angels. So God has this book in which he has written the names of all the elect, these people. And uh, Jesus there promises that, you know, that cannot be taken away. 
So it talks about having our names written in the book of life. Romans 8 makes it clear that it is God who does that. It says that, um, you know, God is the one who predestined and he calls and those he calls he justifies and those he justifies he glorifies. And so our salvation starts with God. All of it begins in God. A passage that you don't have uh, that is helpful is Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 which says, For he, that is God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. And those he predestined, he predestined us and adopted us as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Now this tells us that our salvation has been planned from the beginning. We are Christians because God willed it so. It starts with him. And so when we consider this question of whether we can lose our salvation, we have to remember that our salvation has been architected and orchestrated by God since before the world was even created. He chose us to be saved. Which then leads us naturally to the next point. If God the Father saves us through, uh, you know, through electing us and, and, and choosing us from the beginning, how does he do that? Well, salvation is accomplished for us by God through Jesus. And then that's the second point. So Jesus, that is God the Son, accomplishes our salvation. So God the Father wills it, God the Son accomplishes it. The Father chose for us to be saved, the Son achieves that salvation. And the, and the verses that speak particularly about that is the 1 Peter 1 verse 3 to 5 and then Jude uh, 24 to 25. So 1 Peter 1 talks about how Jesus, because of his great mercy, has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Um, this is what Peter says. He, Jesus saves us by giving us a new, a new birth, a new living hope. That is why we are called born-again believers. When you come into a relationship with Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, you are born again. The old self... Your old self has died. Your heart, you know, this heart that's totally depraved and, and rejecting God all the time, that is made new by God. He gives you, you know, the Bible talks about how we had a heart of stone. He now gives us a heart of flesh, a, a living heart. Jude then goes on to tell us that the only way we are saved, the only way we get back into a relationship with God the Father is through Jesus Christ our Lord. As Mia read this morning, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's Jesus speaking. And so not only does God elect people, he actually achieves their salvation through the Son. So the Father wills it, the Son achieves it. The, all of the Trinity is working together uh, to make our salvation works. Now this happens when Jesus ultimately takes our sin on himself, and he goes to the cross and dies in our place. That is where God put the punishment that was on us, on, I guess, himself, so to speak, on the Son, and makes us clean. Our sins are forgiven through that. And that is true of every Christian, every believer, ever. We are saved through faith by Jesus on the cross. And when that happens, we change. While it is true that our sins are forgiven on that moment, we are washed clean, it's not true that we are now perfect, right? Our sainthood, our cleanness, is not because we now live perfect lives. We don't sin ever again. 
What happens is the Holy Spirit comes to live in us and starts changing our hearts bit by bit, slowly, slowly, so that we will ultimately grow into uh, the people God made us to be. We learn to be more and more like Jesus as we read the Bible for dummies, right? We follow Him, we seek Him, we try to embody Him, and as we do that, we change. This is God, the Spirit, working in us to change us. The Holy Spirit constantly nudges us, changes us, empowers us, stirs our heart to follow Jesus. And pretty much every Protestant Christian agrees on this part. Now the process is, uh, the, the question is, does that process ever stop? Can you stop being saved? Once you have been saved, can you be unsaved? That's the question. Can you reject God once he's truly started working in your heart? And the answer is, no, you can't. Why? Because salvation isn't just started by God, it isn't just accomplished by God, it is actually completed by God too. He finishes the work he starts. Uh, He gets the job done. And the verses that particularly talk about that is again Romans 8, 28 to 39. Philippians 1 verse 6 is very helpful. I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it through until the day of Jesus Christ. In the same way, 1 Corinthians 8 verse 9, so he'll also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with, uh, with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And Paul in 2 Timothy writes from a very practical and personal perspective and he says the Lord will rescue me from every evil work and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom that is the work that he started he's going to complete all the way until I am in heaven with him the Romans passage is the classic text it shows us there there is a unbroken chain of events that lead from our predestination to our glorification the God who predestined us Uh, to be conformed to the image of his son he also called and those he called he also justified and those he justified he also glorified and i harped on about this last time but it's not some of those who have been predestined have been called and it's not some of the lucky few who have been called who actually are justified and it's not just the lucky few who are justified or also glorified no there's a one to one to one to one relationship those he called he justifies. Those he justifies, which means to have your sin forgiven, he, glor- uh, he glorifies as well. He changes us, he shapes us in a one-to-one-to-one unbroken chain all the way from God's choice to our final glorification. In Philippians, Paul writes that he started a good work and he's going to keep it carrying it on. So the Bible's picture is that if God starts working in your heart, he will follow it through. He strengthens you until the end. He works through your heart, protecting you from all evil to bring you safely into his heavenly kingdom. There can be no doubt. If the Holy Spirit lives in you, you cannot again be lost. Your salvation is not in danger if you are a true believer. What God has started before the beginning of the world, he will finish at the end of the world. Now, if you're a thinking person, which is true of most of us, (laughs) I hope, um, if we believe in God, 
What about, what about those people who used to believe in God, right? What about our friends, our family members, people we know who spend many, many years in the church, for example, and they no longer believe? Doesn't their experience of life invalidate what the Bible says here? So how does that work? How can, how can we say that what God starts, he will finish, and then it seems like he hasn't done that in the lives of these people? We've seen that God predestined. We've seen that if he predestines, he calls, if he calls, he justifies, if he justifies, he glorifies. How then does that work? That's a question I will answer, but let's park it in our brain for a moment and we'll come back to it at the end. So how does God do it? How does he complete uh, our salvation? Well, he does so through God the Father protecting us and through God the Son praying for us constantly. So God completes this work in two different ways. Firstly, God uses his own power to protect our salvation. I think that's pretty incredible. Um, John chapter 10, verse 27, 29 uh, says, let me just find it here. Um, So my sheep hear my voice, this is Jesus speaking, I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand because the Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them from the Father's hands. So John is describing how sheep are protected. We are protected by God. God promises that we cannot be snatched from his hand. He describes us as being held in God's, the Father's hand. And the point that he's making is that nothing is greater than God. No one can take on God and battle him and win. And the result of that is that we cannot be snatched from his hand. There is no one, not even the rebellious heart that lives in you, that can take you out of God's hand if he has chosen you. Paul makes the same argument in Romans 8, where he says nothing, neither life nor death, nor angels nor demons, nor future or past, nor any power, nor anything at all in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. And why not? Well, Peter 1 verse 3, uh, sorry, 1 Peter 1 verse 3 to 5 tells us. uh, He says there, um, so because of his great mercy, he's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And this is the important part. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. God himself uses his almighty power to protect your salvation. If you are one of his children, if you are a believer, you cannot be lost because God the Father ensures it by guarding your faith with his power. Isn't that incredible? And because God is more powerful than anything else, more powerful than the highest of the demons, Satan himself, nothing can snatch you from him. So God the Father uses his power to protect your salvation. That's why when he starts the work, he will finish it. But it's not just the Father that does the work, it's the, it's the Son as well. Jesus right now is interceding for us bringing our needs before God the Father. So not only does the Father protect us through His power, God the Son is constantly interceding for us. 
And I've given you a whole list of passages that talk about that. I'll pick one just here, uh, Hebrews 7, verse 25. He says, Therefore, this is Jesus, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. In the same way, uh, in Colossians 1, verse 23, um, he says there, that once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed by your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by a physical body through his death, death, in order to do what? This is Jesus' work. In order to present you as holy, faultless and blameless before him. So that's what Jesus is doing right now. Romans tells us that Jesus is sitting at God's right hand, interceding, praying for us right now. Hebrews tells us that this work is ongoing all the time. He lives all the time to do this for you. Revelation talks about how Jesus acknowledges us before God the Father. Colossians explains how he, he does the work in order to present us as these perfect, holy, faultless, blameless people before God. Now friends, we have to realize how significant this is. This isn't the kind of prayer that you and I pray when, you know, our friend is sick. What Jesus is doing the whole time now and forevermore is to be in constant conversation with God the Father, shielding us from the consequences of our sin, clothing us in his good works, in his perfect life that is lived for us. In Hebrews, the argument is being made that Jesus is the high priest who was this once-for-all sacrifice to wash us clean. He's the sacrifice that constantly tells God the Father, look, your wrath is completely paid for already. They are clean because of me. That's what he constantly is doing for us, even today. Now, Jesus does not do this if he's not committed to your salvation. He finishes the work that he started on the cross, in a sense, and the Holy Spirit continues to work in us so that we can be presented blameless before God. And so not only does God the Father protect us, God the Son constantly intercedes for us as well. And so we cannot be lost. That leads me to the natural question is why? Why does God do this? Why, does, why is he so interested in completing our salvation? Well, it is so that he can glorify the Son at his second coming. Passage in Philippians 6 and 1 Corinthians 9, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 8 and 9, each of these passages talk about God's purpose in our election. It is for the day of Christ Jesus. Now, uh, what does that mean? The day of Christ Jesus is when Jesus comes back again, when he will be ultimately glorified as the judge over the whole world. And so, one of the things we often get wrong as modern-day Christians is to think that, we, that our salvation is primarily about us, you know, that we are saved for our sake. But God's purpose in election is that day of Jesus, not our salvation as such. God saves us so that God the Son can be glorified. Ultimately, that's what the whole world has been created for, for God to glorify God. And in particular, God the Father wanted to glorify God the Son, and God the Son wants to glorify God the Father, and that happens ultimately on the cross. Now, we don't have enough time this morning to go into that, um, but that, that is why God made the world, in order to glorify Himself. 
And so the reason then that God is so interested in our salvation, the reason that he continues to work in us, the reason that Jesus continues to intercede for us, is because that last day, the day of the Lord, is coming. The day when Jesus will judge the living and the dead is on its way. And on that day, all true believers will be gathered around the throne of Jesus and we will bring him glory forevermore. And it is with that ultimate purpose in mind that God sustains us, strengthens us, guards our salvation. It is for that reason that God, uh, the Son, Jesus, constantly intercedes for us. Because our salvation is not ultimately about us. It's about the glory of God. And because of that, God is deeply committed to ensuring that it happens. That's why he guards us with his own power. So the summary so far is that God starts it. He predestines us. Jesus saves us. God continues to, to work towards it, protecting us with his power. God the Son continues to work for us, interceding for us. And it happens for God's glory. And that's all wonderful and great and true, but so what? What difference does that make to us? Well, I'd like to suggest to you that there are at least four reasons this is important to us. It applies to us in at least four different ways. Firstly, it gives us great assurance that we are saved during periods of doubt. Now, just think about this. If God is behind your salvation, right? If both God the Father and God the Son are working sort of in heaven and God the Spirit is working in your heart, wanting, you know, work, making sure, ensuring that your salvation is saved, if God promises that nothing can snatch you from his hand, then we can have great assurance that we are saved even when we doubt because that doesn't depend on us. It depends on God's action. Is that not something all of us need to re be reminded of from time to time? I mean, how often have I doubted? How often have you doubted? Even just like two weeks ago, I went through a couple of days of just severe doubts where my faith was being tested. How do you deal with that? Well, luckily, it doesn't depend on me and my conviction on any particular day. It depends on God. I cannot be lost because God has prom promised it. He protects my salvation. He guards it with his own power. Jesus constantly intercedes for me, bringing me before God the Father. God the Father elected me. The Son died for me. The Spirit lives in me. And together they continue to work for my salvation. So I can trust in that, even when my own conviction wavers from time to time, as it does for believers, right? So it gives us great assurance during doubt. But more so, it also gives us great assurance even when we struggle with sin. One of the greatest tools that the devil has is to convince us that because we are struggling with sin or a particular sin or there's this one thing that keeps getting us or we're just generally aware that we're not living up to God's standard, uh, he, he, one of his greatest tools is to, to convince us that because of that, we're not really saved. When we start believing this lie that because we haven't conquered all of our fleshy desires, we are lost, we can wander. But this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints shows us that actually 
since our salvation doesn't depend on us, even our sin cannot snatch us away from God's hand. If we are genuinely struggling and trying to live in repentance but falling off and over all the time, but trusting in the Spirit and, and repenting when things go wrong, if that's true, then these are actually all really good signs that God is actively working in your heart. In some ways, if you struggle with sin, it's, it's almost proof that you're not lost because your struggle is proof that God is working in your heart. It is only the sinner who has met their Saviour who wants to turn from their sin. The sinner who isn't convicted, who doesn't want to change, is the one who should be worried. What God promises to start, He, he, he will finish. That leads us to the third great assurance, and that is that our relationship with God remains intact even when we struggle. Because our salvation doesn't depend on us, and because God has promised that He's got this, Jesus is praying for us, the Spirit's working in our hearts, we can have great assurance that we are loved. We are God's children. Our relationship with God is intact. We have been washed clean, Jesus intercedes for us constantly. And that means we can, in fact, stride boldly into the throne room of God, pure and holy because of Christ's work. We actually genuinely have a real relationship with the Godhead because we are, we are clean. We can, we can come to God as one of His adopted children, and that is our relationship. There is no need for us to cower or hide or try to cover ourselves up because Jesus has already paid for our sin. We can have great assurance of that. Which then brings us to the last implication is that this doctrine gives us great strength to persevere in our sin because we can and will conquer. Because our salvation is secure, we actually have the strength in the Holy Spirit that lives us to conquer our sin. We might be struggling now, but God has given us the power to overcome. The Holy Spirit lives in us. Sin, the flesh, the devil, they have no power other than the power we allow them to have in our lives. The engine that drives us, that gives us this desire to live a holy, to live a holy life, actually comes from the very creator of the universe. And so we actually have everything at our disposal to overcome sin. Our flesh and our desires can be subjugated in His power. And I think that's amazing. That gives us the strength to live a holy life even today in this world. And so then this is my argument. That salvation begins with God. It is accomplished by God the Father through God the Son. It's completed by God the Father. He finishes the work through protecting us with His power, through the Son praying for us, through the Holy Spirit living in us, He completes it so that His Son can be glorified at the second coming. And that makes four great differences to us. It gives us great assurance during our doubt. It gives us great assurance even when we struggle with sin. It gives us great assurance that our relationship with God is intact. And it gives us the power to persevere and conquer our sin because God has got our back. Which then leaves us to the question, can we lose our salvation? The answer is no, we cannot. Because it is ensured by God. So then, 
What about the people who have given up their faith? Let's take the car out of the mental garage. If all of what we have just said is true, then how come we all know people who have given up their faith? Maybe they went to church when they were little, they seemed to know all the right answers, they maybe even did all the things that you would expect of a true Christian to do, and yet ultimately they reject God. Maybe they reject God because they had a bad experience. Maybe they reject God because they you know, listened to some arguments and came to realize that you know, it's all made up, it's all just a, a, a crutch to lean on for the weak. How is it possible that what the Bible says is true and that can happen? Well, the Reformed view sounds maybe a little bit harsh, but I think it logically makes sense. And we can handle it. The Reformed view is that of the perseverance of the saints. That is, that we believe that no one who has true faith can be lost. We may wander, we may wander away from God because, you know, we we want to follow our own way, but God will ensure that we will come back. But the key word here is true faith. If you don't have true faith, faith given by God, you will not persevere. You will not persevere. You can pretend your whole life, but you will not persevere. If you have not been elected by God, your faith is cultural. It is something you do because that's what your family's always done, or maybe that's the culture you live in. But you will not persevere in faith. You don't have true faith. You can go to church all your life and do all the Christian things and never be born again because you don't have true faith. You cannot because God is not in it. That is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, that all those who have true faith will be saved. And so after all that, we can answer the question, can I lose my salvation? Not if you have true faith. Practically speaking, we have to address the situation. So what do we do for our friends and family who have wandered? couple of things we need to think about. One is, you do not know the journey ultimately where it will end. God knows that. We have a role to play into helping, guiding people back, to pray for them, to share the gospel with them. But in the end, that is ultimately actually between them and God. So what that means is we cannot make a judgment now and go, oh, well, you must not have had true faith, so I can just ignore you. No, you don't know that. You may very well be the instrument that God is using to bring that person back to faith and and fellowship with his people. Secondly, if they then continue to reject God forever, we can say that that is not our fault. It's not that we have failed. If they reject God, it is because God has not chosen them from the foundation of the world. And that is also between them and God. And we can take comfort in that. And so hopefully that answers the question. Can we be, lose our salvation? No, we can't. We can't. Not if we have true faith. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize that we have kind of steam, uh, steam trained here through a whole bunch of stuff this morning. But I do pray that this will be helpful to us, that you will shape us through this, that you will give us a kind of solidity in our faith, knowing what is true, Lord, where we have more questions, may we find the answers and seek them truly. We pray that you will help us to be helpful to those around us who 
who maybe have wandered away from you. You give us great encouragement to pray for our brothers and sisters and our friends and our family members who are doing that because we may be the instrument that you use to bring them back to you. And so if that's the case, we pray that you will give us great courage and strength, knowing that we can trust that you have got it in the bag, if, uh, if indeed that is your will. And we thank you, Lord, that this morning we can come together and again celebrate uh, the meal of the Lord's Supper together as people who have indeed been chosen by you, called by you, justified by you, and will ultimately be glorified also through your power. And we pray all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.